I graduated from the Indiana University Police Academy in 1989. The IU program was unlike anything in the U.S., allowing full-time university students to get their law enforcement certification while attending college. It was an amazing experience and one I will never forget. A little over three months after graduating from the academy, I was sitting on the couch in my parents' home watching TV. It was Christmas break and I was home from college for a month. There was a knock on the front door. I answered it, and the Poseyville town marshal was standing on our front porch. He said, I heard you graduated from the police academy. That's right. I'm working as a part-time officer while going to school, I replied. How long are you home for, he asked. Almost a month. I go back in January, he smiled a little. Want a job over break? Doing what? Deputy town marshal. Hell yes, came out of my mouth before I had a chance to think. The next day, I met the marshal at the town hall, and I was sworn in. We walked outside, and the marshal handed me a set of keys to the town patrol car. I put some uniform shirts in the front seat for you to wear. Everything else you have will be fine. I'm going to Florida. I'll be there for the next three weeks. Here's my phone number if you need anything. And off he walked. I have never been so excited and terrified at the exact same time. For the next three weeks, I was the only cop in a small town of about 900 people, and most of the time, the only cop on the north side of the county. That really hit home when after about two weeks of trying to figure things out, the county dispatch hit me up and sent me to back up a Mount Vernon officer who was calling for help. I was the only other officer available in the county. That emergency run took me almost 30 minutes at speeds way too fast for the roads. The thick trees, cornfields, and narrow winding roads almost did me in twice. By the way, you heard that right. I was the Mount Vernon officer's only backup, and it took me 30 minutes to get there. That's the life of a rural officer. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. Kathleen Diaz isn't a cop, but her husband was, and the experiences he faced every day as a rural police officer made her want to write about the issues faced by rural officers in America. She began studying, writing, and researching topics important to rural officers and speaking out against the Mayberry perceptions that most people have of the job. Not only does Kathleen write a column for PoliceOne.com, but she's also started tracking rural officers who are assaulted and killed in the line of duty. Having read her articles for years, I was happy to have an opportunity to talk to Kathleen about her championing the rural officer. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation. It's great to be here. I have been reading your articles for a number of years now on Police One, and you focus on the rural police officer. I'm really curious, how did you get uh, involved in that? How did you start writing those types of articles? I started writing those types of articles because that's the kind of law enforcement my husband did for 27 years. So that was literally our life. And I started out actually on social media where I could be anonymous because he was still an active officer at that time and needed a firewall between my online shenanigans and his actual work. Uh, even when he was the boss, I needed you know to try not to get him in trouble any more than possible. But I saw that there were a lot of stories. I'm kind of a news hound and things happening in small places, in remote places, even in national parks and out in the forest. And it just doesn't make the national media, not because they're ignoring the stories, but because there simply isn't a lot of media there to cover it. So I annoyed enough people 
enough time saying, well, what about this story? What about that story? How come nobody's doing this? I finally started my own uh, Facebook page and then eventually a blog and an Instagram account. And that was exactly for that was for um, sharing those news links, talking about the stories. I used the hashtag Mayberry is a myth because pretty much anything that can happen in a city will happen anywhere else, whether it's a small town or, or a campground. Yeah, I always point to the episode in the Andy Griffith show where the gangsters show up to Mayberry to try to kill Andy. And I said, so it even happens to Andy Griffith. I don't care where you work. You work there long enough. Something bad's going to happen there. It will. You know, if you look at the way like a high time map is, is laid out, all of those drugs and bad things and gangs and stuff, they don't teleport from city to city. So right. they're driving right through the middle of where you are. They think nobody's watching. They think nobody's paying attention. And the fact is that there are people policing in every single one of these places, whether it's a national forest or a national park or on the shore or in you know small farm towns in the middle of the plains. You know, well, we you talk about and you spend a lot of time in your articles talking about those those small towns, those rural policing. I want to talk about that a little bit for our listeners. You know, what is a small town? What is rural policing? I track, and I have been, this is my fifth year, uh, the numbers of officers shot every year so that I can kind of keep track of what the percentages are of officers who get hurt and killed in small towns, because I think that goes underreported. I had to kind of settle on a definition for a small town for that. If you're going to make a spreadsheet, you know, you've got to put something in the initial cell. What is this? Um, And because I had a hard time at that time, that was in 2019, finding a specific definition for what is a small town. I settled on anything 30,000 or under for one category. And then I broke it down to 11,000 and under. But you know, you also have to look at a map and and use some sense too, because there are towns that are 30,000 people that are really suburbs of much larger metros. They just happen to have their own town lines. Um, I'm not going to cover that because you know, those guys have plenty of resources, plenty of backup, their budget may suck, but you know, that's life. Um, but they're not really, they're, they're not experiencing the effects of isolation or lack of backup and those sorts of things that I'm interested in. I think the census decided a few years ago to settle on less than 200 people per square mile density as their newer definition of rural, because they're struggling with that as well. You know, before it had really been arbitrary lines, you know, we'll draw a line around this city, anything outside that line, we'll call that rural and this is urban. But that doesn't, that doesn't really explain what's going on out there. I'm not sure anybody has it completely nailed. Yeah. I mean, I'm in, I'm in Indiana. And one of the things that come up is Indianapolis is the 16th largest city in the United States. Beach Grove, Indiana is a, is a small town that exists in the center of that city. So it's not a small town, but it would meet some of those demographic definitions without looking at a map and going, Hey, wait a minute. You can't even find broad ripple because it's actually a community in the city of Indianapolis, as opposed to being its own kind of rural area. Now my father, uh, you know, my father, I kind of grew up with my father doing reserve deputy uh, policing in a small county. Uh, And then uh, once he retired, he did the small town policing gig for a little bit. So it was always been kind of close to my heart. And I assume with your husband doing it, that's why you got so heavily interested in some of the issues he was dealing with and the problems he was seeing. That's exactly it. Um, He worked in small towns and counties in California. He'd already been a deputy in one of the um, Sierra counties when we got married uh, for three years. 
And uh, we stayed there long enough to realize that there was no way we were going to be able to uh, buy a house or have a family because we were close enough that uh, commuters from the Bay Area were able to come and pay, you know, thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands above asking price cash for properties there. And, you know, we couldn't even, well, let's put it this way. We, we went to go get pre-qualified for a mortgage just to see what we could afford and the bank wouldn't even talk to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we went, Oh, that, that, that's a clue. And then um, we're moved to a, an even smaller town, almost on the Oregon border. And then eventually in one of the towns and in, in, are you familiar with the term, the Emerald triangle? Yes, I am. Okay, well, we lived in 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 the 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 third leg of the Emerald Triangle. So he eventually retired from one of the counties there, and it's ex- not just rural, but also remote. It's hard to get to. Uh, you have to go, you know, it's forty miles to the nearest Walmart. Um, the roads are narrow and steep and frequently closed, not just in the winter by mudslides and snow, but even in the summer by fires. It's 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 a whole other way of being. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand is that's where the majority of police officers are in the United States. They're in these small towns. They're in these rural areas. Uh, you did a great article kind of talking about the, a Washington Post article on on small on small towns, you know, and the one thing you did, you know, hey, they got this right was, you know, the fact that about half of the agencies in the United States have less than 10 officers. I worked in a, a police department with 100 officers and I thought we were small. Well, the reality is we were huge compared to 90 percent of the police departments across the United States. That's absolutely correct. And and it's not even just a matter of manpower, but the resources, the lack of resources that you end up with, with that small a thing. Um, and some of the issues aren't even just a matter of, you know, like, okay, I don't have backup, but it's also other factors. That's a whole quality of life thing. Like my husband worked for 27 years. He never had a partner, not once, not ever. There were departments that he worked with and places we live where we really didn't know any of the other law enforcement families or officers, because anytime he was off, everyone else was at work or asleep. And so a lot of the, uh, the, you know, the thin blue line brotherhood rhetoric just is absolutely flying over our heads. We're sitting there going, um, our, our experience a lot of times was one of isolation. And I didn't really realize that until the internet and social media became more of a thing. And, and I joined a, a forum that was all other police wives. And I thought, oh, I've never had a chance to talk to these people. And this will be really cool. And I realized within a few months, we're all talking about completely different things. I have no idea what these ladies are talking about. They're very nice ladies. And it was, you know, a great stab at support, but their lives were not our lives either. I find that very interesting. I did an episode where I spoke to a number of police wives and uh, just getting some of their feedback. And you said something there, that isolation, that kind of being alone feeling. I think that's something that runs through a lot of spouses of law enforcement. I, I think it probably does too. I grew up as a military brat. My dad was career Air force and didn't retire until I was in college. So that was my whole life. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences too, but the odd hours and the odd days off and those sorts of things are a lot the same. On the other hand, you don't have the built-in framework that you do. Like, you know, we lived on base almost all my life. I was well into high school before my parents ever bought a house and there's always someone around always. Um, But with the law enforcement family, that's not so, you know, you're keeping those midnight hours by yourself. 
And again, that's that's common for most of the officers in, in the United States because of where they're working. Now, we, we just kind of touched about some of the challenges of small town police. I want to go into a little bit more detail about that. What are some of those challenges that the rural officers are facing? The isolation is one. One of my last articles that I wrote for Police One um, addressed a, a phrase that it's kind of a catchphrase in, in emergency response and it's distance from assistance. Um, so the idea that wherever you are, if you don't already have backup with you, it's going to take a long time to get there. And that is one of the downfalls when a rural officer gets hurt too. Um, they don't have somebody there to, you know, they don't have somebody there to return fire if they can't, uh, to apply a tourniquet if they can't. It may take as long, if not longer, to get an ambulance there as it did to get backup. Those are big ones. Funding is always a thing. Uh, one of the places where I tend to make people kind of cranky is when I say out loud that a lot of the most conservative areas that are the most vocal and visible in supporting their law enforcement very often talk a great talk and they're fast with the blue line flags, but they really, really stink at passing a solid budget. I have talked with officers and written about officers and interviewed officers who have been told flat out that ballistic vests cost too much. They're not going to issue them. Um, that tourniquets cost too much, TAC med training, that it's not time to replace the tires or the brakes on their car and sorry for the condition they're in. Because they know I'm a safe place to vent, I, I've gotten private messages from officers in the middle of the night who need a place to vent because one of their friends just died in a car wreck and the administration knew the brakes were slick. Right. They knew that. And there's nothing to be done about it because unless they live in a state state that has its own stringent OSHA standards, uh, workplace safety regulations do not apply to law enforcement. So there is literally nothing they can do. And uh, that's really frustrating. And that's, that's not something I think you're probably going to see a whole lot of in urban departments, because um, there just are a lot more officers. And even if they don't have a powerful union, even an informal association can find a way to get that out to the press and 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 things like that without it being obvious. You know, it's easier to pretend, oh, it wasn't me when there's 300 of you than when there's three. Right. I think this is something that a lot of officers do misunderstand because those of us that worked at 100-man departments or 50-man departments or even the bigger departments, the thousand, the thousand officer departments, whenever I travel around and teach and I say things like that, you know, that, hey, I remember having to buy my own gun. Uh, I remember having to buy my own body armor. Uh, I remember officers that didn't bother to wear it. These people will sit at you, will look at you and say, that, that's ridiculous. That's It's not like that. And I'm like, what oh, is? It very much is. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And and this is where we end up with, it's almost a whole, gosh, I don't like using this, but it's almost like a whole separate tier of law enforcement. And that's actually one of the things I, I tend to write about a lot because I think it's wrong. Absolutely. Um, and because... The vast majority, not of police departments, but the number of officers are working in large departments. There's a perception that that's all there is. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of the people who say vote or, you know, choose the people who are going to be the next decision makers, a lot of them base their decision making on views that they formed watching TV, watching the movies, um, that sort of thing. And it's like, even, you know, I don't know, you watch even a lot of, of stuff on television and stuff. None, none of those people are actually going without stuff they need. I mean, my husband's first apartment when we were in our 20s, when he left, they had not had range for a year. 
Right. Because every single round the department owned was already on the deputies' belts. And they were driving patrol cars with cases of oil in the trunk so that they could <laughs> top them up at each stop. Um, and, uh, you know, you say that to a city officer and they're like, well, I've actually had city officers tell me, well, you know, the maintenance of that vehicle, that's the responsibility of the officer who's driving it too. And I'm like, that officer does not have the financial authority to take that thing to a shop that's not contracted with the county and say, fix this place. They right. Don't. That's ridiculous. And then it becomes, uh, then it would become very responsibility, you know, uh, instead of the departments or the cities or the, the county's responsibility, because they went ahead and had other maintenance done on it that hadn't been approved by the county. Well, and the thing is, the officer that's telling me that is speaking from a place of experience that he's responsible to note that there's a problem with his vehicle, write it up, and it goes to where? The motor pool then? Right. And then the city mechanic you know, is supposed to take care of it, and he does what? He checks out another vehicle. I write about departments where they're so small that if a vehicle gets destroyed in a wreck or a gunfight or something like that, it is actually a financial hardship for the entire city or county to buy one more to replace that one. And and they're using hand-me-down equipment from other agencies or bigger agencies in the area. Uh, they're taking what other people are discarding because they just can't afford it. I, I think that's uh, a huge issue that just a lot of bigger uh, bigger agency officers don't understand. That and the backup issue, not having backup. I was blessed in my career that when I got on the radio and screamed for backup, that within a minute I had it. And if it took longer than a minute, I was probably going to beat the ass of the guy that took longer to get there. But when I talk about rule officers taking an hour to get back up, people lose their mind. Sometimes, yeah, I, I know in the last county that we lived in, in California, three hours was not unheard of. Um, because you might look at a map and say, okay, that's, you know, 70 miles, but it's 70 miles of two lane roads on 6% grades with switchbacks. You just simply, you can't get there from here. And there is no alternate route. Um, and that's presuming there is backup, you know, your backup may well be once they get there two forest service officers, a game warden and, and a, a, a highway patrol officer, you know, <laughs> so. right. And, you know, I, I, when I teach out West, particularly I was teaching a class in Flagstaff and I was talking about backup and there were some tribal officers in the class and the one just laughed. And he said, first off, you have to figure out what mountain I'm on because I call it something different than you do. So then it's going to take you hours to find me. So I don't have a backup. And that is really big when we talk about basic officer survival skills like contact and cover, which does a wonderful job of protecting officers uh, when they have those extra, that extra hands and those extra eyes. But many of these smaller agencies as you've talked about working by themselves with no backup or backup that are hours away, they don't have the opportunity to use this officer safety tactic like contact and cover. Well, that's one of the places I, I make a lot of pop culture references because they're things that everybody can like identify with. And, and I enjoy it. I've told people before that the, the movie that that's the touchstone for like every modern officer tends to be end of watch unless they're rural officers. And then it's Wind River. And there's a scene in Wind River, if you've seen it, where the police chief is telling the FBI agent who's been assigned there because it's reservation land and there's a major felony. And she asks him, well, we're going to wait for backup, right? And he says, this isn't the land of backup, Jane. This is the land of you're on your own. Yeah. And the uh, and on top of that, as you you mentioned as well, because this is something that 
you know, the most recent, one of the most recent articles that you wrote and talking about your study starting to track violence against rural officers. I think a big part of that is exactly what you said about the medical care, not having access to um, one, having assistance for that tourniquet or any of that immediate medical attention that they might need. But when you look at ambulances uh, taking hours to arrive and then hours to get to a medical facility, those are hours that many officers that get wounded in the line of duty don't have. Especially if it's something uh, something really major where we're, we're talking about you know major blood loss, a head wound, a spinal cord injury, because it's not enough just to plug it up and go there. You're talking about something that needs addressing in a level one trauma center, or it's not even just a survival issue, but an issue of quality life thereafter. Because story after story after story that I'll find in the news, one of them, I actually pulled up Google Maps and I tracked out the route. There was an officer, a a deputy in Montana a few years ago who uh, stopped a guy, you know, the guy was walking scantily clad in the middle of winter in Montana alongside the road. You know, you're going to stop that person and contact them because they're going to die, you know, Um, and the guy stabbed him multiple times. And so he's by himself. He got back up eventually. They transported him to their hospital. And don't get me wrong, we're thrilled to death with our little critical access rural hospitals. They were able to patch him up and stabilize him. Then they had to put him on a helicopter and fly him to the nearest city. And nearest is a very relative term in Montana where that could be addressed. Well done for him. His major issue was the blood loss. And so once they got him stable, filled him back up again, made sure nothing else was going to cut loose. He was able to go home to recover. But if that had been a major head wound or a spinal cord injury or something like that, those hours lost, those hundreds and hundreds of miles, those make an incredible difference. Almost always, if you see an officer survive that and recover to any any degree, they're in an urban area and they're within minutes to a high-level trauma center. A lot of times you'll also discover that they had attack med officer right there on scene with them. And that makes a huge difference. It absolutely does. That leads me to the next thing that I really want to talk to you about is your new study, starting to track this violence against those rural officers, looking at some of the data that's being collected by Leoka and the fact that that doesn't really cover what we're looking at. And some of the more recent, I don't know, discoveries you've made kind of pointed to the fact that rural officers are facing a much higher violence than we're seeing in the urban settings right now. Let's talk about that. Why did you get into that? And and uh, were you surprised by those results? Um, I got into it actually helping a friend with um, a similar tracking back in 2016. Uh, and and to be honest, uh, she was involved in a lot of other things and found it emotionally overwhelming to be recording this stuff day after day after day. Um, so that project was abandoned and it wasn't my uh, document. So I lost access to it. And so it just kind of sat out there for a while. And in 2019, I said, well, I'm going to give it a stab. And I resurrected it and started it myself. So this will be the fifth all, fifth year that I've been tracking that. So I track every officer shot that I can find within the 50 United States. And then I further break that out by those two population centers that I noted earlier. So 30,000 or fewer, and then 11,000 or fewer residents. And I note the actual number. So sometimes these are going down into the, you know, double digits for, you know, we're talking of a post office and, and a hitching post on the way through. And I, was surprised because I expected that I was 
overestimating the number of rural officers who were getting shot and who were dying of that because that's my bias. You know, that that's my world. And I was already looking at it going, come on, isn't anybody else seeing this? And and the fact is, no, nobody really was because like Leoka does not break down anything geographically. They they look at city, they look at state. So police, sheriffs, and then they have a whole other bin for tribal officers and then a whole other bin for all federal officers, but none of them are looking at where it happened other than remarking by state. But even in a sparsely populated state, there's a big difference between say Fargo and someplace 20 miles outside of Fargo, as far as what the resources are and the response is going to be. So that was why I started breaking those down. And now it turns out that every year between 25 and 30% of the officers who get shot are shot in the areas I write about, but a higher percentage than that are the ones that actually die of it. And the past few years, I've been writing about it every year in May for, for police week, for police one. Um, but I obviously keep these databases all year long. And so I'm tracking them throughout the year and the percentage of ratio of, of rural officers versus urban officers that are actually dying of getting shot has actually been going up last year. And this year I ran the numbers this morning before we got on, I made sure everything was updated so far by my numbers. I count things differently than the other places do. But so out of 211 officers shot nationwide to date, 28 have died. There have been 24 vest saves, 35% of the total that have been shot are the officers that I write about, but 61% of the fatalities were from the areas that I write about so far this year. And that to me is really that huge disparity. That's where you're seeing a big difference, uh, looking at the numbers died as opposed to the numbers that are assaulted. The next question you have to ask is why? I ask that every single year when I write, because I'm very much an amateur researcher. I, I told I, I told a real researcher that that I talked to about a month ago about this that you know I'm just a writer who counts. You know I'm not a statistician. I'm not a mathematician. I know there's all sorts of more sophisticated formulas that can be run that, with this than running bare percentages. I don't know how to do those things. But if I can count and I can look at it and go that ain't right, <laughs> you know, um, then maybe I can get the attention of somebody else who can because um, there's a lot of things that I hadn't even thought about. Like, um, Rob Lawrence, who heads up EMS one, talked to me about this after the May article ran and said, okay, well, I, I he ran it the other way. Let's look at the urban officers. So he did and discovered that an urban officer is about three times more likely to survive being shot, according to these numbers, than a rural officer is. Now, my gut instinct goes back to the medical that we talked about, you know, that you've got that golden hour. There's a great opportunities there with with EMS being very close, typically. And as you've said, EMS officers and tactical tactical medics right there on the scene, oftentimes that you absolutely don't have. But one of the other things that came up in some of the discussion groups about this was this was talking about training. And I think that's another thing we should probably talk about. I, I have to agree. Those are some of the things that come up. Um, distance from advanced medical care, on-scene help immediately, backup, being available immediately. Because I think there's probably some officers in rural areas who get shot who might not even have been attacked if they had had a backup officer. Very often, especially those are the ones that a lot of times it'll even take like a couple of hours to even find them when dispatch realizes they're not answering. 
you know, that that's a shot that the bad guy may have decided wasn't worth it. If there had been more than one officer there, I don't know how you would prove that. Um, and the, the training is something that's come up more than once with other people I've talked to, especially when they are trainers saying, how were these officers trained? What was their approach like? And I don't know how you answer that because there is no one training standard, not even through, forget about throughout the nation. There isn't even within each state that we still have places where every single agency runs their own academy. Right. So I'm, I'm not even certain where you would start answering that question. To me, the interesting thing about the training aspect, because that's what I do, is um, immediately people want to say, well, the large urban centers, the big police departments, they're trained a lot better than the rural officers. That's not true. One of the things I've found in all of my, I mean, I've been teaching and training uh, nationally for over 20 years. What I found is the people who are never in my classes or never in these training classes are the big cities. They never come. They're all trained in-house, if you will, by their own people. If they get any training at all, they wave a hand at checkbox training where the agencies that seem to get trained the best are, okay, these medium-sized agencies, right? These Mm -hmm. 50 officers, maybe 100 officers, 50 officer type agencies, 25 officer agencies. They've got just enough manpower to send some people out and get some training. They've got just enough budget to send them out and get little things, go get some ideas about what's going on outside. But then I think that those really small departments, the three-man departments, the one-man and two-man departments, they really struggle because they don't have manpower to let them go train. So I think by immediately saying big agencies are trained better, then that's the problem. I don't think that's quite fair, but your point is you're you're very much on point. The training standards is so far across the board. It's really hard to decide what is better and what is worse. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I, I am completely speculating here, but I always wonder with the very large agencies, if a lot of those officers simply become really dependent on the idea that there are going to be a million people there at the very first call for help. And there's probably more people than work in the entire department of some of the really small places on the initial call before they ask for backup. Um, And one of the reasons that I'm saying that is because there were a couple of officers I knew in our last town, which was really small. One of them specifically had already retired twice. And uh, I mean, you know, he started working for LAPD during the Watts riots. Okay. So this guy, yeah. yeah. So he went went way back. He had some stories. On the other hand, uh, he came and was now working for this really tiny department. And he told us, he says, I I have to rethink everything. I had to relearn everything because he had never in his entire career. So we're talking going almost 60 years back now not been able to call for backup and have dozens of officers there within minutes. And now there just were none. And he says, you know, everything I know got complete turned on the way he made stops, the way he talked to people, the way he walked up to people, all those things had to completely change. It was, it was a whole other way of being. And, uh, you know, so it makes me wonder, you know, are the really big city officers working that much more safely, or is there just that much more safety in all those numbers? And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Now, we, we've talked a lot about the horrors of the small town police officer, but I don't. that's not fair. There's some wonderful reasons why officers go and work in those small towns, leave bigger agencies like LAPD to work in small towns, and stay there. What are some of the great things about rural policing? 
some of the great things about rural policing are going to be that you actually do get to know the people that you're working for and the people that you're working with. Always a two-edged sword to know that your kid's going to be going to school with the kids of everyone you've ever arrested because there's only one school. On the other hand, um, if you make for yourself a good reputation, if you treat other people respectfully as if they are your neighbors, generally that's going to be the way they treat you as well. I mean, I know uh, one of the guys that my husband had arrested for drunk a week or two before is the person who, when he was sober, stopped and pulled over on the side of the road to ask if he need help when he when a guy was fighting him a couple of weeks, just a couple of weeks later, because he was fair with me. He was good. He was all right. Um, I know in our last town as well, uh, I, I had my doorbell ring because you don't hide in a small town. And whether your patrol car is parked out front or not, it doesn't matter. Everyone knows who you are and where you live. Uh, when I opened the door, it was two little girls and uh, their brother had crashed his bike in a ditch and was stuck under the bike and he was crying and they were scared. And she actually said out loud to me, she says, because a policeman lives here. So this is a safe place to ask for help, right? Yes, sweetheart, it is. Let's go fix your brother. You know, he wasn't hurt. He was just stuck. It scared him. But the idea that that was the association they had, that a policeman lives here. So this is a safe place. Their dad had been arrested multiple times. But that's still what they saw with our house on the corner. It was okay to ring our doorbell. And I love that. It's almost like, and it's not going to be universal. I don't want to make this statement as it's, this is the way it is, but it's like that demotivation and dehumanization and the defund police movements that we've seen so heavily in these urban areas haven't quite made their way to these small towns yet. And uh, while again, like I said, there are places in which you're going to see some of that and there are bad people everywhere you go. The small towns still seem to, even though they don't maybe financially support their agencies, like they said, and as you pointed out, they still really respect and enjoy working there and and enjoy the officers being there. And I think that carries into the work life of the officers working in those small towns. It's much, people are not monoliths and it is much harder to pretend that you are or to pretend that you are the other when they see you coming and going every single day from your house when they see your kid going to school with their kids when they see your spouse me at work um i worked in public schools i was a career substitute teacher it's hard for spouses to find career level work in very small yes. towns and honestly that's one of one of the roadblocks to recruiting officers from larger towns to i, I remember talking to one guy they said well why didn't you take that position he said because after they offered me the job and i drove with my family there to visit the town and show my wife where we're at she burst into tears as soon as we hit the city limits you know the idea of living somewhere that remote a place where you know, her kids had no choice in the schools, had no choice in what sports they could play. She couldn't find work. There is no daycare. That that was absolutely insurmountable. So I, I fixed that by doing one of the most flexible things on the planet, and that's working as an on-call sub. That meant seriously that I was in a different classroom every single day at the high school all year long. And every single one of those students and all the teachers all knew who my husband was and what kind of work he did. It's really hard to look at you and then try to stick you in a box once they've already gotten to know you. That daily contact um, makes a big change. Talk to a police chief from a small town just a few miles over from where we live now. It's an area of eastern Oregon where there's a ton of gang traffic. It's very rural. It's very much farming and ranch land, but there's a lot of gang and drug traffic. And he knew that when he took the job, but 
He went out of his way to establish relationships in the community. There's so many arrests we've made without anyone getting hurt because mom or grandma or girlfriend or auntie called and said, he's here. He's got warrants. I don't want anybody getting hurt. You've, you can establish those sorts of relationships if you're never seeing the same people two nights in a row, let alone standing next to them in line at the grocery store. That's much harder to do. You know, what we've seen in recruiting and hiring many agencies, especially the large urban agencies across the United States, are looking at at record shortages in their officers there. New York City Police Department's down to 33,000 officers from their 40,000 cops that they used to have. Uh, these places, many of these places are down 15 to 20% in staffing. And over the last couple of years, the the people who've benefited from that are their smaller police departments and smaller agencies as officers are leaving, even though they're taking pay cuts, they're taking opportunities that are kind of going away by leaving those major agencies. They're going out into those rural areas and taking jobs because of quality of life and because of the fact that they feel, want to feel supported by their, by their communities, which they're not in kind of those urban areas. And so I've often said that communities get the policing they deserve. Would you agree with that or completely disagree with that with as much as you've seen in those rural areas. I would agree to it with it up to a point. And as we both already kind of established, there is kind of a sweet spot with what constitutes small. I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of urban officers going to those, you know, 10 or less departments, but they might well be going to the, you know, say between 30 and 100, something like that. A lot of that has to do with what resources are available, where they're going. And a lot of it has to do with housing costs. Um, there's a big misconception that, well, it's okay to pay them less because, you know, they're living out in the country and it costs less to live there. And okay, for instance, my brother lives in Indiana and I'm a little bit familiar with that. My dad was stationed in Illinois two different times when I was growing up. There are areas there that are very nice to live in, very affordable. And honestly, I, except for your horrific winters, I would probably (laughs) be willing to do that. It's beautiful there. But there are a lot of rural places where that's not the case, especially on coasts. Beach properties cost a bundle no matter where you are and no matter how small the town is. Um, Anything near a national park, anything near a ski park, anything near good hunting areas, all those sorts of places. Uh, Out west, one of the things that really cuts into housing affordability that you don't see back east much is the much, much larger proportion of publicly owned land because it cannot be developed. Uh, So the last county we lived in was about 80% publicly owned. So between that and it being um, extremely mountainous, there just were not a lot of places left. You could build houses even if somebody was going to. That can send housing availability absolutely through the roof in a place where it's nearly impossible to commute to. You know, it can, there are places far enough away or hard enough to get to that you have to commit if you're going to go to work there. It's a yes, but. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Uh, I know that, you know, my town being the home of a major university, even though we're in Southern Indiana, which by everywhere around us, you would see, oh, low cost of living. I have Chicago cost of living. My my housing is like Chicago cost. My gas is like Chicago cost because of that just this little area that we live in. And I think, and I totally agree with some of those different areas as well as it's hard for that urban officer to go and work at a one-man police department, you know, but it's not, you know, 50 is small for him. Uh, 30, you know, 30 officers is small. But I do see that a, a lot of those have kind of like I said, grab some extra manpower, which actually leads me up to something else that you talked about. And I want to also touch base on is Invest to Protect Act. The Invest to Protect Act 
on its face looks like a wonderful thing that all of these small departments should be jumping on board with. But I personally have some huge issues with that. And I wanted to hear kind of what your thoughts, I know you've looked into it and I was interested in your thoughts on it. I did write about this last fall. Um, so it was before that session of Congress had adjourned for the year and and I it's you know it's making its way through again one of the big beefs that I had with it uh was it defines smaller departments as 200 or fewer officers as we've already established that leaves out a whole lot of officers I don't really see in a, a department with eight officers competing successfully for a grant uh when they're competing competing with you know, a place with 150 to 200 officers. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is you, whoever administers the grant wants the biggest bang for their buck. Yeah. And a 200 man department is going to have a, a grant writer. They're going to have somebody to write they those will have grants. A grant the the and, one and person likely, department they, they will not. And whoever is going to be writing their grants uh, is probably going to be the chief or the sheriff or a sergeant, you know, sitting there banging away in the middle of the night between calls or something like that. And just, the, the actual logistics of applying for the grant can be really overwhelming for a very small department. And that's something that's hard to explain to a place that does it all the time. And it's probably something that sh- should be made better, but it's it's kind of like that that old adage of it's expensive to be poor. Right. have heard that before. Yes. It, it's kind of that same thing. It's like you're so busy just trying to make ends meet now that anything bigger, anything more to reach for becomes absolutely overwhelming. It's time consuming. It's nitpicky. Um, You then have to go and try to get it approved by your board of supervisors or your city council. And you have to start all over explaining it uh, and then get that done in a timely fashion to get the grant. And then you have to comply with all of the grant terms. Um, One of the other problems that I saw with the Investor Protect Act was a lot of really vaguely defined things, um, whether it had to do with, with training standards or whatever. And it was like, there was nothing at all in the language of, of the bill saying, uh, you know, who decides what this is or what that is, or what this person is, or, you know, it was, it was, it was frustrating. So a lot of unfunded mandates, right? A lot of, you need to train on this list, We're not going to pay you or give you any extra money for that, but you have to train on that to get this money. And you have to train on things like, you know, de-escalation, which is a great catchword right now. Everybody has to train on de-escalation. Well, as you've already pointed out, when I'm the only officer working for a hundred miles, de-escalation is how I survive. I don't (laughs) piss off people unless I have to. And when I have to, I know I'm going to win before I start. And in, in big cities are very different with all of the different manpower. And so some of your, your rural officers are just going to laugh at the de-escalation stuff. Um, they are. There's. I actually ended up writing a column on that. And that one came out of one of our conversations on social media. I don't even remember what the original post was now. I'd have to go back and look. But it ended up with this awesome comment thread uh, of all of these rural officers saying from really practical things, like I always carry dog biscuits and cigarettes. <laughs> to right. um you know i i don't have a jillion calls stacked up pending and i'm an hour out from the office to get to this one if i have to talk to you for 3 hours instead of fight you for 3 minutes i'm going to you know one of us is going to get tired eventually it'll be fine you know that sort of thing there's also a chance too that you already know 
what the issue is. If it's somebody who's, you know, who's a frequent flyer, maybe has, you know, behavioral issues or mental health issues or something like that, you probably already know that before you go. And those sorts of things can make a difference. But yeah, no, no sane officer is going to survive responding solo to calls and then picking fights. It just doesn't. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's not practical. I'm going to call you the champion of the rule officer, because I feel like you're, you're talking about things that everybody else is, you know, they're hand waving at because they're focusing on the bigger agencies. They're focusing on, you know, these new things. And as we've said, some of these new things are been old things in, in the small departments. Do you have any last statements of whether they be in words of encouragement or words of warning to those small officers or small departments, those rural officers that are listening right now? My major word of encouragement would be that I see you and I hear you. And I will say the things that you can't say out loud because of your uniform and your badge. And that's really, that's really why I write what I write. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on, taking the time to talk to me about these topics. I think they're really important. And I think it's great for us to be able to talk about something that a lot of officers don't talk about. I appreciate the invitation so much. Thank you for helping me get the word out. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 